Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's the message that was sent 22 years ago last Sunday, the first, very first text message, Merry Christmas. A young uh, engineer, test engineer, sent out that message on December 3rd, 1992. Uh, Just a year ago, 6.1 trillion text messages. They figure that's uh, 193,000 text messages per second. But the first was Merry Christmas, a message of hope, and it still is a message of great hope. And that's what I want to talk to us about this morning as we consider what child is this. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 through 7. Because the message is really about apprehending the hope. It is about making it our own And that's true with the prophetic word. I thought it was interesting this morning, as Brian mentioned, the message, the conversation of N.T. Wright and how he met a friend who said, uh, uh, now that I'm grown up, I don't believe in God anymore. And and sometimes that occurs, doesn't it? As as we we get a little bit uh, roughed up by life. And our hopes become dashed. And then we become tentative. And we start to protect ourselves. And we rein in our hope. And we lose that childlike confidence and expectation and and anticipation. Walter Wongren Jr., he's, he's known for his books, children's books too, and some of his own books uh, about his personal faith walk and journey. He wrote a book titled The Manger is Empty, and in there there's a chapter called The Chamber, and it kind of captures this very thing. I remember as a child, I mean, at Christmas, the lights, the tinsel, the music, uh, it's just full of childlike hope and expectation. And I think those lights still continue to symbolize. They just kind of invoke hope. Seeing them in the night. They draw us to hope. Well, he tells a story in this, this book, the, the Manger is Empty, in the chapter, The Chamber, about a tradition in his own family that I thought really captured the hope that, that I experienced, and maybe you did too, as a child. I hope you still know that hope. But you might resonate with this. You might feel this like I did. But in The Chamber, he tells about the tradition in their family, and he as a young boy, uh, knowing every year, as Christmas would approach, dad would take a room and that room he would prepare for Christmas, but he kept it shut. He even took the doorknob, the outside doorknob off the door so the kids could not get in. And they would hear dad inside that room and they knew from previous Christmases that 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 room became the heart of Christmas because he would erect the tree there, he would 
cover it with ornaments. He would wrap the packages and build them up, and it was just a room totally decorated for Christmas. They anticipated that each and every year. But Walter himself, the oldest of his brothers and sisters, I guess in part a little bit coming of age, even still a young man but growing up a bit, he knows a little bit of what it's like to be roughed up, to be a little disappointed, to have some hopes dashed. And then, of course, with growing up, there was a specific experience. He didn't really tell it, but it kind of changed his expectations about Christmas. And he says that this particular Christmas, he became silent, solemn, watchful, and infinitely cautious while his younger brothers and sisters could barely contain their excitement. He was grabbed by severe restraint, he says. And those doubts entered in and extinguished hope. He says, what if you hope and it doesn't happen? It's treacherous to hope. The harder you hope, the more vulnerable you become. So he decided that he was not going to make himself vulnerable like that. And as a, as a result, in many ways, he stood apart from his younger brothers and sisters in spirit and in expectation. And when the moment arrived and dad opened that door and the kids were there just electric with anticipation, they all rushed in. But Walter held back and was covered with a frown. His father noticed it. And even though the kids ran in gasping and giggling over what they saw, Walter stood back alone. Hope is powerful. You see it in the kids rushing in. But disappointment is too. Discouragement is too. And I want to talk about the fact that hope can dispel that. It can dispel it through faith. A lot of times, discouragement is crept in through false hopes. But in Christ, there is true hope. Let me explain to you that we have to apprehend hope by faith. Have you ever noticed, and of course, since I was thinking about this this week, I noticed it. Hope is a noun and a verb. The same word, just like love. Love is a noun. Love is a verb. Hope is a noun. Hope is a verb. Because of hope, the noun, I hope. That's the verb. And that's the way hope works. The noun is future and the verb is present. When I hope, I'm pulling the future into the present. Obviously, it's something positive and not yet mine in all respects. But the positive of tomorrow, hope the noun, The positive of tomorrow makes me positive, hopeful. It makes me hope today, the verb. Hope the noun is tomorrow's future expectation. 
hope, the verb, is today's frame of mind and emotion. Apprehending that hope, pulling it into the present, anticipating it, and actually experiencing it. Hope is powerful, both as an expectation and an emotion. In fact, in the current play, A Civil War Christmas on Broadway, there's a line that caught my attention. The hope of peace is sweeter than the peace itself. Hope, the verb, apprehending hope, the now, is powerful emotionally. We can experience the future today. Do you know what pulls the future into the present? Tomorrow into today? Faith. These are familiar words. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen is hope the, vir- the verb. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the noun, is experienced, I hope, the verb, and the evidence of things not seen. Walter had lost some faith and hope in his father's Christmas. He opened that door and the children ran in, all excited and dithered. He held back. On their faces was a glow, a genuine apprehension of the Christmas that their father had prepared. But because of doubts, Walter held back and couldn't experience it. In fact, there was a frown on his face. Hope is powerful. So is discouragement. Hope can actually dispel that discouragement, that darkness, where faith is vital and vibrant. And true, we can be discouraged. But this is where God becomes our firm foundation where we can take to heart what he says in a way perhaps we can't in any other. I want to talk about the prophetic hope that looked forward to Christmas. We're on the bright side, the fulfillment of that prophetic hope. On the dark side, They looked forward to it. It was a hope that was far future. And yet, it made a difference in their world. And it could have made an even bigger difference. Jesus is our light. Jesus is our light. The hope of the world is ours when we apprehend, when we let that light in. When that light just isn't out there, but it actually illumines us. And we, so to speak, take it to heart in such a way that it changes our frame of mind. The future changes our frame of mind and our experience. 
I want us to read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. We're going to look at how light dispels darkness, and then the darkness, and then how to stand in the light. Because this light is hope. I'm going to begin with verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice because you, before you, as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is interesting because this light here, this light that shines, is hope. And the effects of hope are seen in the most vivid way. You can virtually hear the people rejoicing. And that's the first thing that we're introduced to in verse 3. This abundant joy. That's what we see in the light of this hope. There's abundant joy. Abundant as the multitude is multiplied. There's abundant joy. And it's a joy that you can feel in its experience. And he gives us two expressions of how great is this joy. It's, it's the kind of joy at harvest. And we live in an agricultural area, so I know some of us may actually feel in a personal way or know from our own experience that, that kind of joy. But those of us who perhaps have not expressed faith in the sowing and labored through the difficulties of seeing those things come to fruition, those crops come to fruition and bear fruit, and then the joy of actually bringing in the harvest. This was the center of their life. And he draws upon that so that they have some basis for understanding in their experience the experience of this joy. What's powerful too is that in these first four verses, there are, there are, everything's expressed in Hebrew perfects, which means that this is something experienced as though it's already happened. It's not even worded as though it's in the future. It's worded as though it has already come. The other thing that gives us a sense of their great joy is victory. Harvest and then victory. And we understand that even though we may not know a harvest. We, I can remember the joy when my daughter was married. The joy when my son was married. That's a harvest. That's a kind of harvest. We know victory. Maybe not victory in battle. The end of war. 
as is pictured here. Powerful, powerful picture. But we do know the victory when our favorite sporting team wins. I'm still kind of joyful about the Giants. But I digress. But how about the joy when a, a candidate, your candidate, the one you've labored for, wins the election? I mean, there are those kinds of joy. We understand this celebration. And the prophet Isaiah says, this is the hope that we have. It's a great light that has illumined our darkness and changed our experience, turned our sadness and our discouragement to joy and celebration. So it is an abounding joy and an abiding peace. He says war is over. It's an abiding peace. You can take all the gear and stuff of war and you can burn it. It'll never be needed again. It's over. It's gone. And why? Because a child is born. All of this, this abiding peace and, and peace this shalom is more than just the cessation of war. It's not just the end. It's the beginning, the fullness of God's best, His well-being. So these are abundant times, abundant joy because of a child. And the description is powerful. Wonderful counselor. These are, the, these are the descriptions of a great leader. A wonderful leader. A leader who stands for all of this abiding peace and abundant joy. A leader like they've never experienced. This is going to be the Messiah. But for us, don't miss something that was is it just as important to them, and that is, is that in this description, we have a picture, a profound picture. This light is a hope that should resonate with us because it tells us God's disposition toward us. He wants the very best for us. And the very best is someone who can lead us to the very best. Grant us the very best. Provide for us with the very best. These are the, the names of this leader. And, and it's even multiplied in its impact because this is what he is called. In other words, this isn't just something that said, let me introduce to you somebody who is all of this and then you judge them. No, this is an expression of our opinion. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. Prince of Peace. This is what we say because this is his renown in our experience. And this is God's gift. Light is hope because we see the truth of God's heart. We see what he's really like, that he's truly for us. Don't miss that underlying application and implication for us in this description but light dispels the darkness. And even as we saw in verse 2, there was great darkness, great discouragement, great disenchantment. Briefly, let me explain the situation. We go back to chapter 7 and we see it. 
If California was a kingdom and Oregon was a kingdom and Washington was a kingdom and Canada was a kingdom, there pretty much you have the geography, the geopolitical geography of chapter 7 and 8. Judah was California. Israel, the northern tribes, were Oregon. Syria was Washington. And Assyria was Canada. And Assyria was threatening. It was a major storm. It was bigger than Sandy and Katrina. And just as people begin to prepare, and the rumors, and the conspiracy, and all of the panic and unsettled nature of, the, of these rumors, people are preparing. And the king is too. Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, is preparing. And he's in a terrible predicament. He's between a rock and a hard place. He's in a lose-lose situation. Because Israel, Oregon, and Syria, Washington, have formed a coalition to resist Canada, Assyria. Assyria is on the move. And they've formed this coalition to fight and to resist them coming down into their country. He's knocking on the door, and they're barricading the door. But they have told Judah, you have to join us. And if you don't, we're going to knock you off your throne, because we have to face this thing as an alliance together. That's one rock hard place. The other is that Ahaz knows they can't withstand Assyria. So if he joins them, he's going to show himself rebellious to an irresistible power. So his choice is no choice, and he's thinking about not joining that coalition, but maybe making an alliance with Assyria itself. Ahaz sits on the throne of David. And we know from 2 Samuel 7 that God made to Davis a promise that was unconditional. That out of him would be a root. Out of him would be a stock that would bear great fruit. I mean, the, the remnant would survive. The whole future is in the house of David. And Ahaz in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus himself, Ahaz is mentioned. He is in the very house of David, the house that Jesus as Messiah would inherit. And so God says to Isaiah, I want you to go to Ahaz and I want, to give you, want you to give him a pep talk. Now, the, it was dark, and there was this great storm coming. That's the political side. But it was even darker. It was double dark because of the spiritual, dismal lack of faith in God. Oh, the people had faith. They had plenty of faith, but it wasn't in God. And their leader, Ahaz, he wore the crown of David, but he didn't serve the God of David. And so as a result, they were in the dark, terrible darkness. And the chance to turn around was put 
in the hands of their leader. And boy, that tells you the power of a leader. You are leaders. In fact, you are an Ahaz in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your sphere of influence. And it may be this morning, I know this was true of me, I have to kind of think through these things. It really struck me this week, I'm an Ahaz. I have the chance to influence people. Sometimes we become discouraged and disenchanted and God's word no longer has an effect upon our lives because perhaps we do not take it to heart. We don't believe it. We've outgrown it. We're grown-ups now. Or we've guarded our heart against hope. We're afraid that if we step out in faith and faith involves risk. We'll be vulnerable. And so we guard our heart. And we become secularists. And Ahaz was a practical secularist. And you'll see how hardened he is. In in chapter 7, Isaiah goes to him. In verse 3, we're told he takes his son. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. There's a message to Ahaz. And he takes his son. His son's name is kind of interesting. It's Sha'ar Yashuv. There will be a remnant. This is a, a child's name that gives a message. A message of hope. And this is what Isaiah says to him. In verse 4, and I'm just going to put it in my own words. Ahaz, slow down. Stay calm. Don't be afraid. Don't let these two cold matches think that they can burn you. Don't you think that cold matches can burn you? And so he is telling Ahaz, don't be afraid. He goes to meet Ahaz while Ahaz is checking his fortifications, making sure that they have the water and what they need to withstand an assault. And in verses 5 through 9, the Lord, through Isaiah, says to Ahaz, and you'll notice if you scan him in your Bible in chapter 7, 5 through 9, he talks about the head of the capital and then the head of the nation. The nation and then the head of the nation. And so he identifies the head of Assyria and the king. The head of Israel, the ten northern tribes to the north. And the king. But when he gets to verse 9, he doesn't repeat that for Ahaz because he wants Ahaz to answer that himself. In effect, God is saying to Ahaz, do you know who you are? Do you know my promises to you? My word to you? Does it mean anything to you that you are the head of this nation just as Jerusalem is the head of of the capital. And then he says in the very last words, look at verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a play on words in Hebrew. You can even hear the rhyme. 
Imlo, if not, if you do not. Imlo ta'aminu, kilo ta'amenu. You don't have to understand Hebrew. Just the impact of that. He says, if you will not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. In other words, God is saying, step out on faith. Trust me. I'm going to take care of those guys to the north. They're no threat to you. This is my offer of hope to you. And then Isaiah says, and it's as if God is speaking to the king. He says, look it. Ask for a sign. Let me prove it to you. Ask for a sign. And what does Ahaz say? He says, in verse uh, 12, I will not test the Lord. I will not ask for a, a sign. I will not test the Lord. And then verse 13 tells us what's really going on because God in effect says, he says, so you who make men wait for you have no problem making God wait for you. Have you ever been to the doctor? You sit in a waiting room. How upsetting, how exasperating is it when you have an appointment and the doctor makes you wait? Now, sometimes for all the doctors that may be here, I understand. Sometimes things come up. But here is a king who's so focused on himself that he has no problem making people wait because he's the king. You wait on him. He doesn't wait on you. And now he does the same thing with God. This man has become so secular that God's word to him cannot penetrate his hardened heart. There's no room for hope. There's no room for faith. How about you? This Christmas, on the dark side of Christmas, God's word comes. And there's that attitude of, I just won't even test the Lord. I won't even Our faith is so darkened. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, and it's as if God himself is speaking. He says, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to give you a sign. A virgin will give birth to a child. His name is Emmanuel. And before this child comes of age, curds and honey is the age when you can distinguish between what is tart or sour and what is sweet. But here it has to do with that age of which we know not only the difference of that, but good and evil. And this child, this hope that was offered to the nation is postponed and in place judgment. By the time this is going to happen, in fact, in chapter 8, the next, very next chapter, Isaiah has another child. And this child's name, and it's a very interesting name, and it's a, it's, it's a name of judgment. Four great names, just like the names of the child that we are introduced to in chapter 9. But in the very next chapter, he says... Uh, <laughs> He says, 
got to find my, let me find it to you in the verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And the meaning of the, of the child is the idea, and it, just like the, the, the announcement of the child of hope, this child, before he knows how to say mommy or daddy, now the, the, the north is going to come and the darkness is going to be fulfilled and they're going to be overrun. And in chapter 8, verse 16, Isaiah says, bind up, bind up the message. And here's something very, very powerful for us. Bind up the message. And in verse 17, he says, I will wait upon the Lord. I will hope in the Lord. Do you see that? In verse 17 of chapter 8, I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in Him. He is the God of hope. His heart expressed in the good that He wants to do for His people, expressed in the child that will be born, is a hope that is realized in our experience even when you're on the dark side of Christmas as Isaiah was. The light, which was now postponed, as it were, another 700 years, the northern tribes would be taken into, well, not just taken into captivity, but dispersed. We don't even know where those tribes are. And Judah would be taken into captivity later. But, boy, my voice seems to have real volume all of a sudden. Did it change? Oh, hearing kind of an echo, but at any rate, um, this hope, and I don't want us to miss, miss this, because Isaiah then embodies this hope, and it's spread even among his disciples. His own children become signs of hope. And in verses um, 18, 19, 21, 22, in that darkness that's then dispelled in verse 1, just before the announcement of the child. He says, keep your eyes on this hope. Trust in the Lord. Wait upon Him. Hope in Him. The alternative among the people in this darkness is to turn to necromancers and those who speak for the dead. And he says, he says they have no dawn. They have an endless night. Why would the living consult the dead? Those who have no hope. Those who have no future. We have a dawn, he says, because of our God. Stand in the light. That's the message. How do we stand in the light? Even on this side of Christmas, when Matthew says in, Ma in Matthew 4, verses 13 through 17, and he quotes verse 2 and 3 and 4 of Jesus, Jesus himself leaves Nazareth and goes to the Galilee of the Gentiles, this very area, and it is there that his ministry begins. And Matthew sees this as the fulfillment and says so of the very words of Isaiah. And what did Jesus preach? The kingdom of God is near. There is a true coming 
into effect of the prophecy of Isaiah in the life and ministry of Jesus. We know this. But yet, even on this side of His birth, and even on this side of the fulfillment, waiting for the full fulfillment of the kingdom, we sometimes, maybe it's in our adulthood, let that discouragement get the best of us. We keep the Word at bay like an Ahaz. We don't want to be vulnerable to really letting God create that faith-filled child that expects great things from Him. Too often we're not full of joy. The kind of joy that's experienced when a future hope is realized through hope. The verb, hope, and the experience of our own lives. I, um, there's a new book out Professor Adam C. English, who's a religious historian, has written a book called The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. I remember as a child, uh, it was really rough on me when I learned that uh, there was no Santa Claus. But you see, long before that Santa Claus, the kind of uh, uh, jolly-bellied, red, uh, felt-covered, long-bearded, old jolly guy, before him there was a real Nicholas who was the inspiration for our Santa Claus. Our Santa Claus that has today morphed into something that's a far cry from the Nicholas that inspired it. And I'll tell you why he inspired. He was born in 260, AD 260, 260-some years, 250-some years after Jesus. And he was inspired by this great hope, our hope, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. He was a very firm believer. In fact, his life was committed to dispelling paganism, unbelief, dispelling the darkness of distrust and kindling the light of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because it was that light that had kindled it in him. He was even at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, which was the foundational council that did, as it were, once and for all among the councils and became the, build, the, the cornerstone for every council that built theologically on it. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is one with the Father and the Spirit. But what distinguished Nicholas in this inspiration, in this light, was his hope. He gave his life, his inheritance to helping the poor, the sick, the children in need. He gave in secret, expecting nothing in return. He saved three young women from slavery, protected sailors, spared innocents from execution, provided grain in a famine, and rescued a kidnapped boy. He became the inspiration of the modern Santa Claus that has morphed so far from the inspiration of the original Nicholas. 
And that can happen to us. But we can rekindle that. We may not be in a position to be like that Nicholas. To save people literally from starving. Or prostitution. But what's to prevent us from doing something in our own sphere of influence. Our own kingdom. The word is coming to us as Ahaz. Are we so jaded, so disenchanted, in our hearts so hardened that we will not take a step of faith because hope has penetrated the darkness? To stand in the light requires just a childlike faith. To believe in a God who doesn't disappoint. Oh, there's a, there are people in our world today that are so cynical. I mean, it is becoming typical of our nation and our times. Not just our nation. The connected, social, networked world. And there's just an expectation of the worst. And there's a Scrooge attitude with anything that just reeks of hope. Don't you be like that. You can be different. You can make a difference. And it does make a difference. Don't lose sight of what Isaiah did. He didn't go home just because Ahaz didn't fulfill the strategic role that he had to fulfill. But Isaiah continued to live in that hope. And after Christmas, a Nicholas lives in that hope, that inspiration. And you and I can too. Walter, when his dad opened the door, held back and stood with a frown. I mean, the darkness was evident. And as his dad hugged the kids and they were all kind of tearing into everything, full of excitement and joy, just fully living in the experience of that hope realized his dad moved to the center of the room and stood and looked at Walter. And I'll bet every parent here knows a time of festivity and rejoicing when a child was in a darkened mood and you, you try to draw them out. You want to bring them into the experience. You don't want them on the outside. And Walter's dad did that with his son. And it was when he looked into his dad's face that all of that Darkness was dispelled. We live in hope. But it's looking into the very heart of God, into the very face of God, that continues in the darkest moments, whatever our circumstances, that brings light and causes us to glow with the very light that illumines our heart. That's how we spread that light. That's how people come in contact with that light. When you and I can say, Jesus is our light. The hope of the world. Will you stand with me? Walter ran into his father's arms. And the way Walter remembers it, he says, Dad was just yearning 
for me to experience the Christmas that he had prepared for me. And when I ran into his arms and in his, in his embrace, we were both full. God wants the fullness of your faith even as he wants to give you the fullness of his heart. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you cannot fully understand the hope of Christmas. Don't put it off. As we close, I'll be down here after we pray. And if you would like to come and talk to me about what it means to receive the light. Jesus, the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise, prophecy in the light and hope of the world. I'd like to share with you how you can know Jesus Christ, not just as a hope, but as a reality. Maybe this morning, something has uh, cast shadows in your life, and the light is not as bright as it should be. And you'd like to pray about that, either for yourself or perhaps someone else who needs to know just the greatness of God in their life. Maybe the darkness is spiritual. Maybe it's physical. Whatever the need, if you want to pray with someone this, this morning, I'll be here. Pastoral staff will be with me as will elders. Don't leave without coming to the light. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your light. The life that comes with your light. You who said, let there be light. Your Son, the Logos, who was the light of men. Father, we thank you for the light and life, the hope that is ours in you, through your Son and the work of your Spirit. Cause us this day and throughout this week to rejoice, to know that hope, not as something just future, but as present, something that changes today and changes the world. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks and praise. And all of God's people said, God bless you.